Phil Hay Show. Hello there, welcome to the show. Bet365 sponsors the Phil Hay Show and they feature over 300,000 sporting events on their betting app. It's got everything you need to bet on sports. The domestic season returns at the weekend with the Community Shield and Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. And with the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, place to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bets. And if you can't watch the games live with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sports betting company. The app can be downloaded now from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. The Phil Hayes Show brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan. Hello from The Athletic, Phil Hay. Hello. And from The Square Ball, here's Michael Normanson. Hello. Two weeks until we kick off them properly and we've swung into action with some style, breaking our transfer records in the process. So let's work through where we are, position by position if we can. Um, Angus Kinnear told us a couple of weeks back that Leeds were expecting to sign three or four players in this window. So let's deal with the, the obvious ones first and talk about Rodrigo, who's going to be coming in as a striker, our new record signing from Valencia. You've written about him, Phil, for The Athletic. Uh, if you want to read that, by the way, you can try out The Athletic for free at the moment. And on top of that, you can enjoy everything Phil's written about, about Leeds, all that great stuff. Head to theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod for a 30-day free trial. Give it a whirl and enjoy all The Athletic's great content in time for the big kickoff in a couple of weeks. That's theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. Rodrigo, Phil. It's a big one, this, and I think it will probably make people understand why it has been fairly quiet at Leeds for the past three, four weeks and, and why it is that we've been sitting waiting for signing number one to come through the door. A, a transfer like this was never going to happen quickly and, and couldn't have, have happened quickly. And, you know, I have to be honest and say that it's come as a surprise to a lot of us over here in England. To be fair to a lot of the media in, in Spain, they, they were on top of this about a week ago and seemed to, to sense that it was coming. But it was very difficult over the weekend to get a, a definite handle on whether this was actually going to happen or whether Leeds were having a go at a transfer that was a little bit beyond them. But Victor Orta um, flew out to Spain first thing on on Monday morning and it, it was very obvious I think by kind of mid-morning on Tuesday that this was on the cards and, and that it was going to happen and from what I gather Otter has, has been in touch with Rodrigo for the best part of a month um, speaking to Valencia for that same period as well I think the, the issue for Leeds was always going to be whether or not they could do this or whether or not they were going to be priced out of it or ultimately bumped out of the the running by the fact that a bigger club or a club with Champions League ahead of them or or Europa League came in and, and signed him instead. But it had reached the stage this week where, where everybody wanted it done. I mean, Valencia are a real mess at the moment. They have financial problems. They're selling players. He's, he's by no means the, the first to go this summer. Torres obviously gone to Manchester City and, and two players, two very good players, including the captain, sold to Villarreal. So, you know, they have concerns. They're they're doing what they're calling a, a refresh of the squad, but I think you you know that translates into cost cutting and essentially they're at the point where they need players like Rodrigo to move on. And and that is the reason why Leeds are being able to do this um at a fee that, that's affordable. It's the reason they can do it for a player who only a year ago was being talked about as a, a fifty million pound plus player. And from Leeds' point of view, He's due to go away with, um, with Spain for international duty next week. They've got Germany and uh, Ukraine in the, the Nations League. And I think there was just the feeling that if it wasn't done by then and he was away with Spain and, and he was 
exposed to the media and questions about the interest from Leeds that the narrative would get slightly out of hand and, and everybody would lose control of it. So I think when Alter flew on Monday morning, he knew that he was going to close this. He knew that barring anything going wrong, that, that it would be done because Leeds and Valencia were essentially agreed on a price. Leeds and Rodrigo were essentially agreed on, on the loose terms of a contract. And, and by Tuesday night, the point at which Valencia announced that you know a fee was agreed, a medical was already booked for the following day and, and Rodrigo was, was as good as in the door at Leeds. So what sort of money are we talking for this fee then? Because it's been reported at 30 million euros plus 10 million euros in add-ons in today's market. I had a look at the exchanges today. That's about 27 million quid, give or take, plus 9 million pounds in add-ons, somewhere in the 36 million pound region. That's quite a hefty fee. That sounds about right. And I mean, that it, the, the sort of guidance I was given at the Leeds end was that it was somewhere in the region of 26, 27 million pounds, which does equate to, to 30 million euros with that sort of add-on, you know, add-ons of, of up to around about 10 million euros. And again, in Spain, they're being briefed in, in the same way from the Valencia end, um, which comfortably smashes the, the transfer record at Leeds, which is 20 years old and, you know, goes back to, to Rio Ferdinand when he came in from West Ham in, in 2000. And, and I think great example and, and another example of how long it is since Leeds have been mixing in these sort of waters. You know, they've been a, a mile from transfers like this for fully two decades. And, and really, you know, since the point at which they were going for Robbie Fowler at Liverpool, they just have never been looking at players of this calibre. And even when Patrick Bamford came in from Middlesbrough um, in Bielsa's first summer, you know, that was the, the biggest signing for about 17 years at the time. It was the, the mostly just spent on, on, on any player since the, the relegation from the Premier League. So this takes them into a completely different arena. They, this was always the thing at Ellen Road. They, they wanted to be operating on a totally different level. You know, they, they wanted to move from... EFL status to Premier League status and, and to get everything that went with that and I thought it was, it was quite interesting to read a quote from Victor Otter who, who has been out there and has been speaking to, to the media he said that this was a strategic signing from Leeds and, and I think in a broader sense you have to say that a lot of what has gone on at Ellen Road since they went for Bielsa in 2018 has been strategic you know there's, there's been a lot of planning and a lot of thought behind what they've done there's been a lot of thought given to how it might work and, and what might happen for them and, and this is a big hit you know as a first signing since getting back into the Premier League, this is a, a major, major statement. And I think it's fair to say that there'll be other clubs in the Premier League, supporters of other clubs in the Premier League, who'll be looking at this and, and wishing that, that their clubs were showing something like the same financial clout. When we spoke about this in our podcast earlier in the week, I, I don't feel we really necessarily gave it as much time as we should because I think we thought it was a bit far-fetched. It seemed, it seemed unrealistic compared to someone like Ollie Watkins, who we, we felt comfortable getting. I mean... How have the club come to the, the sort of decision that they can they can go for this type of player all of a sudden? Because it, it does seem a, a far cry from everyone else we've be, ever been linked with, to be honest. It does, or at least the, it's the first time that a link like this has been particularly credible or, or actually there to be done. It's not that Lee, you'll have seen Lee's link with um, Leon Bailey at Leverkusen last week. Now that that hasn't been on the cards, that hasn't been planned, and and that I think financially would put a huge dent in the budget, and I think would have been very problematic in terms of trying to get other players in. It goes without saying that Bielsa likes him because that is the starting point of any kind of transfer process at Leeds these days. They, they've long since reached the view that it's pointless chasing any player that he isn't sure about or or any player who, who doesn't quite tick all the boxes because the end game with that tends to be that Bielsa looks at it, turns his nose up and, and says no. But they knew that he liked Rodrigo. They knew that in, in getting into this deal and in trying to get it done, that even if it fell through, they, they would be chasing somebody who Bielsa was ultra keen on and, and who in the end Bielsa spoke to himself to, to try and persuade because... 
from what I gather, Rodrigo's first thought this summer, and he, he knew that he had to go from Valencia. There, there were no two ways about it. He, he was going to be sold. But his first thought was to stay in Spain. I think alongside that, he, he was kind of hopeful that he might get an offer from a club that, that would be playing in the Champions League or, or thereabouts. And I think it did require the Bielsa factor to kind of tip this over to the point where actually he became very, very serious about it. But the, the comparison with Watkins is, is worth thinking about because, you know, Watkins is considerably younger and has a lot more time on his side. I think as a rule in comparison to what we've seen with Bielsa as, as head coach, probably fits more into the, the bracket of, of players that they've, they've been going for, guys who have years in front of them, guys who, who aren't at the peak. And they were very serious about Watkins. You know, they did look closely at that. He was a, a kind of priority target in the sense that they, you know, they, they didn't want to put all their eggs in, in one basket with this. But it, it was hard to to put forward an argument that a, a Spain international with 20-odd caps and who's played for Valencia at a high level, won the Copa del Rey in Spain, that it would be better to go for a, an up-and-coming striker from Brentford. For, for what it's worth, I think Watkins would have been a very good signing. I think he'd have been worth the money and I think he's got the, the kind of skill set that would have suited Bielsa and suited the, the style of play. But I just think with Rodrigo, you're talking about somebody at, at a different level. And I don't doubt that once you get to the top of the club and, and to Radrazani, there, there might well be some satisfaction that this first deal is not only a, a very good deal, it's a proper, proper marquee signing. Speaking of the marquee signing, there was some talk around the Adidas deal that there was a provision in there for some to unlock some extra cash if we did make a marquee signing. Is that played into this at all? I don't know if that's true. And I find it hard to imagine that the money you would pick up would offset the, the kind of, or significantly offset the cash that you would spend anyway on a player like this between a fee and wages. And and the added factor as well will be that I couldn't ever see Bielsa bending on a transfer on the basis that it was going to be financially advantageous for a, a club. He, he just wants the players that he wants. And, you know, if, if there is something in there, then I guess it could well have been motivation for Leeds to, to go and get this one done. But certainly no one has said that to me. It, it wasn't discussed at the time when the Adidas um, deal was, was revealed. And it just seems to me that they've had a go and they've chanced their arm at a player who Bielsa loves um, and, and clearly rates very, very highly and who suddenly came onto the open market purely because Valencia were, were selling him. And, and I don't think if Valencia weren't in decline and I don't think if they were a, a club who you know were, were expecting to keep compete for anything themselves next season or the ne- in the next couple of years, even if they were inclined to sell him, I, I don't think they'd be inclined to sell him for the fee that he's going for. So why does Bielsa like him then? What, what is he going to bring to the team? You presume your starting point there is hard work. Absolutely. Although I think like anybody who comes in, he, he's going to find out very quickly how suited he is to, to this style of play and how, he, how suited he is to doing what Bielsa expects of his, his centre forwards. I mean, it's worth saying that he's never been prolific. And, and I think at the price, there is a slight degree of risk with this. Not huge. And, you know, he's, he's very high calibre and, and he is a Spain international. And there is no doubt that, that he's a very, very quality good quality forward, you know, up, up there in the, the top bracket in Europe. But he isn't prolific in front of goal. You know, he's, he's had very few seasons where, where he's hit double figures. But he is versatile and his, his link-up play can be very good as well. Our analyst Tom Wavell had a look at him and, and it seems evident that there's been a decline in his performance and when it comes to sort of attacking play and, and his XG and everything else over the last couple of seasons. But I don't doubt that that coincides with Valencia's problems and the fact that they're getting more and more limited as a side. They're, they're competing less and less in, in La Liga and, and that may well be having an, an impact. But obviously he can play as a nine. There seems to be a suggestion that he, you know, he 
he can be useful as a 10 that he can probably adapt out wide and I mean the, the one thing he is very good at is progressive passing he's very good at carrying the ball he, he clearly likes to, to get on the ball and I would have thought that given the chance to whip him into shape Bielsa could make a very very good player out of him and, and I think that's probably what Leeds will be looking at with this they'll, they'll know that in the past year he's dipped Valencia have dipped that, that he can probably be better than, than he has been but if there's any coach you'd put money on making that happen it would definitely be the, the man at Elland Road and where do we think this leaves Patrick Bamford? Because you don't pay all that money out for somebody without the intention of playing them, particularly in their peak years, as he is right now at 29. Presumably this this pushes Bamford to the bench, if not immediately, but in due course. Do you think Bielsa thinks like that? I understand the, the rationale, and I think at 99% of clubs, I would totally agree that if you're spending €30 million, Euros, almost £30 million on a striker, then he's coming here to play and it's going to be very difficult for anybody to compete with him. But I think it's inevitable that Bamford will start the season. I think between quarantining and at the moment, Leeds are still trying to work out how that's going to be resolved with Rodrigo because clearly he's in Spain and and in theory and and in a lot of circumstances, he should be quarantining for a couple of weeks, but he's due to go away for internationals next week as well. It would probably be a big challenge for Bielsa to get him ready for Anfield. And we've seen many, many times that he doesn't bend on the idea that players have to be ready and, and have to be skilled before he'll stick them on the bench, let alone put them in the team. I think he'll show a fair amount of faith in Bamford, but I think if all things are equal, a Spain international coming in at that price with, with his pedigree and his background should ultimately get himself ahead of, of Bamford uh, in, in the pecking order. They, they need two centre-forwards, though. That's that's not in question. And I think it's quite interesting to, to wonder whether or not Rodrigo actually opens up the, the option of using two forwards as opposed to one. I'm not sure at what point I would see Bielsa moving to that because it never even seems to have gone through his head. With the rare exception of Fulham away last season, for example, where Nketi and Bamford played up front in, in the second half. It's always been a, low, a lone striker. It's always been four one four one, or it's been three three one three with two wingers either side of, of a centre forward. And, and this maybe gives him a, a little bit more flexibility. But I, I understand where you're coming from. It, it you know it, it does definitely put pressure on Bamford. The, the one thing I would say in, in Bamford's favour is that if anything, his best form at Leeds has always come when he's had a bit of pressure behind him. Do you think he's potentially there's room for him in the same team, but not playing as a two up front? Because from the admittedly limited clips I've seen of him, there's a lot of play of him coming deep and doing more I guess more Pablo Hernandez rather than Pat Bamford stuff and he also seems quite comfortable running at people so he could potentially slot in out wide as well if, if Harrison or Costa were out of the team I don't know if he's he, he does like Pat Bamford an awful lot so I do wonder if he's got plans to fit them both in he's, he seems to have a pretty wide game does Rodrigo he doesn't look particularly narrow um, as a forward and when you consider what he can do and, and what he does well you know he, he does seem pretty versatile and I think there are aspects of him that kind of look as if he could double up for Hernandez that, that he could fill in there so I mean this this is all the, the stuff we're going to find out as the season goes and, and it's always very difficult to you know to second guess Bielsa it was, it's that thing where somebody at the club joked with me you know Rodrigo will come in and he won't play until October because he, he won't be fit or at least he won't be fit enough you know it won't be up to the levels that that Bielsa expects. You know, that may or may not be true. I, I don't know exactly where um, Rodrigo is uh, in terms of his conditioning, but what we do know is that he hasn't been training with Valencia and he's been, you know, they had a friendly with Castellon over the weekend that he didn't feature in um, with all this going on in the background. And I imagine he, he will need to get himself primed a little bit before he, he gets fully involved. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's probably one of the things I'm most fascinated about this season is to see how Bielsa 
tweaks his formation if he tweaks it at all who plays where and what he does to make it different if he feels like it needs to be different in any way and you know given the the confidence that he has in the bulk of the team who who came up something tells me it won't be 100% straightforward for Rodrigo to come in walk into the team and stay there Regards to Bamford I wonder if this is a good learning experience for him you know with Rodrigo having hit the heights in his career that he has and at 29 you know, being that little bit older than Bamford, a chance for him to maybe develop as a player as Bamford hits his peak years. Rodrigo's coming in on a four-year contract, so this is going to be a long stretch from here if if it goes well. And I think Leeds are moving now from the position where, where they've been for the, the past 12 months, where it was pretty much all on Bamford. I know Nketiah was in the background for a while, and, and I know Augustine was here the second half of the season, but it never felt as if Bielsa was wavering and his support of Bamford. And even, you know, the spell in November, just when Nketiah got injured, just at the point where Bielsa kind of decided he was going to give him a four-game run, it felt to me as if Bielsa was doing that out of duty rather than out of the fact that he he, he genuinely thought that Bamford needed to be dropped. I think he, he it almost seemed as if he felt like he owed Nketiah a few games. You know, obviously when Roof was here in the first season, Bamford had a fair few injuries. I mean, Bielsa's first season, Bamford had, a, had the, the knee injuries and was, was kind of in and out and, and it was all on, on Roof. But I think more than ever last season, it did feel as if when the discussion about goals came up, the fingers automatically pointed at Bamford. That's where the debate focused. And, and you had to say that behind him, particularly when Augustine wasn't fit or available, there wasn't a huge amount to fall back on. I think it's a completely different scenario now where if both Rodrigo and Bamford are fit, this doesn't need to weigh on Bamford. You know, he is not the only player up front who should be chipping in. He's not the only player who, who should be going for double figures. And the one thing you have to say is that they're a much stronger team at the end of this week than they were at the start of it. So the other end of the pitch now then, and centre-back is one of the other positions we know we're quite clearly trying to fill because we've lost Ben White and Gitano Barardi is out long-term injured. Leeds now have moved on from Ben White. That's the message that's coming from the club after Brighton refused the third bid and they've made it clear that they don't want to sell to Leeds. Yeah, if everybody takes everything that's being said at face value and and it all feels very genuine to me, then Brighton aren't going to sell. Leeds realised after the third offer that they weren't going to sell. There was a deadline put on it for last Friday, as I understand it, and I think Brighton were actually happy that there was a short deadline on it because it was you know it gave them scope to go back and say, Thanks for the offer, but no, we're not taking it. And given that there is a deadline on this, we can all draw a line under it. And I think since that point, you know, Leeds accepted that it wasn't going to happen and they have switched their attention to Robin Koch at at Freiburg. It's been difficult to push that on at the start of this week because Otter has been in Spain. They've been trying to tie up Rodrigo. That was one that had to be done and that they couldn't kind of be diverted from because they couldn't couldn't kind of let attention stray from it for for risk of, of something going wrong. But if by the time this podcast comes out, they haven't bid for Koch, I'll be surprised. That was certainly planned this week. I think they're in no doubt that they can meet the valuation that Freiburg will set, which will be considerably less than they were expecting to pay for White if they got him. And they're also of the view that, that Koch is keen to come and, and would, would be very, very happy to join. He he and um, Matthias Kleek know each other actually from Kaiserslautern back in the day. So you, you sort of wonder if there might be a few words being exchanged there and, and a few nods and, nods and winks. But, I mean, he seems to be, from as far as we can tell, the centre-back that they've settled on him. And actually, I mean, I, I was discussing this with somebody on Twitter earlier and I was saying that they are very disappointed about White and they did want him and they can see his potential and they know that there could be an, an absolutely first-rate centre-back there. But if they end up getting a Germany international from Freiburg for £10 to £15 million, pounds, who has a similar 
range of attributes and who is going to get the Marcelo Bielsa treatment. Maybe they'll look back on this and think that actually it worked out for the best. That's not to say that I don't think they should have signed White because I absolutely do. I thought he was one. I thought he was potentially as good as anybody last season. I think you could have made a, a strong argument for for Player of the Year. But if it isn't happening, it isn't happening, and the season's coming round in two weeks, and there's an evident gap in the centre of defence which is going to have to be filled. And it always gets to the point eventually, um, like Angus Kinnear said to you, where you have to move on. And I think. Last Friday was that point. Koch would probably have moved quicker this week had it not been for the fact that they were in the thick of the Rodrigo deal. But I, I, I sense some confidence about Koch at, at Ellen Road and without wanting to tempt fate, my gut feeling would be that that will probably happen. One of the things that we picked up on from our chat with Angus was that the alternatives to Ben White, whilst he never told us who they were, probably represented a slightly lower risk to the club as well. And at that sort of price with a similar set of attributes, you can totally understand where he was coming from. Yeah, and there's another one as, as well who, who I shouldn't name at this stage, but who has played in the Championship before and, and is at a Premier League club. There are always, always alternatives. And, you know, anytime you, you speak to Alter or see what he, he and his scouting team do, you, you find out about the depth of the scouting and, and the fact that in every window they go into, they're in a position where they can switch quickly if, if they need to. I think it, it's so volatile, the transfer market. And, and everybody you speak to at the moment says that this one is proving particularly difficult. It isn't overly active there isn't too much happening I think Valencia given the state of the, the kind of Covid market at the moment are, are pretty delighted with the fee they've managed to pull in for, for Rodrigo so yeah I mean they, they always have fallback, fallbacks they, they always have alternatives I think it's a bit cheap even to, to say that they've wasted time on White given that Brighton were indicating right from the off that they were never going to sell I think that one was worth pursuing just in case White decided to agitate and Brighton realised that, that they should let him go or in case Brighton actually were bluffing and, and were just looking for a, a certain fee. But the key in these situations is always to be in a, a position to kind of take a right turn and, and, and head and look elsewhere. And, and you know, even with Bielsa, even though Bielsa wants players in quickly, even though he feels that he needs to have them in for the start of pre-season, in for the whole summer, he will know that the transfer market doesn't work like that. And I, I was saying in a piece earlier this week, when he quit at Lazio, they'd promised him players, they promised a certain number of signings before pre-season started. He, he couldn't see any evidence of anything happening or it didn't look like any of those deals were going to happen. And I think he found himself wondering whether or not there was actually any commitment from the board at Lazio or not. I think that the, the massive difference at Leeds, and this has been true of all the transfer windows, is that there's no question in the fact that they're trying. You know, there's no question in the fact that they are trying to get these deals done and, and they are attempting to make serious inroads. And there are always stages where people have to be patient and, and Bielsa as much as, as anybody else. But I would imagine that he'll be very, very happy with the Rodrigo deal and by the looks of things, Koch would suit him as well. Are we likely to face much competition for him, do you think, given the the, the price and the, the calibre of him? I'm told there's at least one club in Germany uh, who are keen. And whereas, you know, Spanish clubs in general seem to be very short of money at the moment, German clubs seem to be relatively strong. The Bundesliga lo- looks in good shape. You know, that, that com- kind of comes round to the discussion about does a German player prefer staying in Germany and in a league that he knows, or, or actually does he want to, you know, take a little bit of a, a gamble and move to a different league and find himself in a, a completely new setup? You know, there is rival interest. There's absolutely no question about that. But it does appear that Koch is pretty keen on Leeds. And I think with that as a starting point, it gives them a great chance. Just closing out the discussion on Ben White then, I guess the door always remains open whilst that contract remains unsigned on the South Coast. And of course, if he doesn't get sold elsewhere, 
you have to be fair about this and say he is Brighton's player. And I think the one thing that's possibly been forgotten in, in the kind of gnashing of teeth about the fact that Brighton won't let him go is that right back at the start of this when Leeds loaned him, they tried to put an option in his, his deal to take him permanently. And Brighton resisted that and resisted it. And and they did so for so long that it took a while to, to get over the line because Leeds had to make a decision on whether they wanted to take a loanee who might thrive under them, which he has, but who in the end they wouldn't be able to sign. It just surprised me, given the number of centre-backs who are down there, that they weren't tempted to take the money. It's a lot of money for a player who hasn't played in the Premier League, despite what you see in him. But I do see it in, in, in two ways. You know, That's one side of the argument. On the other hand, you know, we, we've all been sitting all season saying that he looks like somebody who could go on and, and play for England. So maybe from their point of view, they've done the right thing and, and maybe they've, you know, maybe they were right to either wait for an offer that was literally impossible to turn down or, or actually to, to turn down everything that came their way. So onto the number 10 slash Pablo Hernandez slash winger option. And maybe this is where the discrepancy in numbers sort of comes in because Angus Kinnear spoke to us about three to four key positions and you've been speaking previously, Phil, about maybe four to five. So we're in the sort of same ballpark here. Do you maybe think that the four to five, three to four, that difference exists around whether they get a number 10 separate to a winger because there is some talk of maybe getting somebody who can combine the two, such as Ryan Kent. Very much so. I think I think that is the case. Um, I don't think that's that's kind of leading them to specifically target players who can do that. I think they're still looking at players that they like, and Ryan Kent was someone that they they thought about very closely last summer before they went for Enketia. And the, you know the decision in the end with that one was that they felt they needed a number nine rather than somebody like Kent who can play as a ten as he does at Rangers, although he plays as part of kind of two tens in, in Gerard's system, but can also play out wide. But Bielsa was very, very keen on Kent and you tend to find with him that once he latches onto a player who he rates and who he thinks could work for him, he doesn't tend to, to let them go. I'm quite interested with the Ryan Kent one because... I know they've been busy this week and I know they've had the Rodrigo deal and I know that they're obviously planning to bid for Koch and, and you know, time will be limited to, to look at other things. But they bid for Kent last week. It was around about £10 million, the offer, which Rangers said no to. And they haven't been back in yet and haven't really shown any sort of urgency to get back in for him, um, which kind of makes me wonder whether they're just letting Rangers sweat a little bit or whether they, they literally do just have too much on, on the plate with all the other deals going on or whether or not there's, there's somebody else who actually they'd be keen on if, if it could be done, whether they're possibly just keeping their options open with this one. I mean, it's it just seems to me that Kent is probably quite a straightforward deal to be done. You know, you don't want to go too high on the valuation, but there has to be a point at which Rangers would deal and you would think that Leeds with the, the finances as they are at the moment would be able to reach that point. But they've sat tight since the first offer was not back and they, they really haven't shown their hands. So I'm, I'm quite intrigued to see where that goes, if anywhere. We were exchanging messages about this earlier in the week, actually, weren't we? And the phrase you used to me, which uh, stuck in my mind, was hedging their bets. And it reminded me that when we did speak to Angus Kinnear about the recruitment process. He said when they set out to recruit, they will have five options for each position they want to fill. And then they rank them in order. So it does make me wonder, is there somebody there? Is there a name at the top of that list that they think they might be able to do in due course? And and it is a case of patience, even though we're at a time of year where patience doesn't seem to be in great supply. Well, I guess what I'd say is that they could do with a winger and I think a kind of number 10 or, or a, you know, Hernandez double would be very handy as well. And and as I said, the thing with somebody like Ryan Kent is he can kind of do those roles. I don't think you're talking about a player at the same level of Hernandez. I don't think you can pretend that with, with Kent. Um, and, and actually, it would be very, very difficult at an affordable price to find somebody who can do what Hernandez does. 
um, even at even at thirty five. But yeah, no, that that's always the case that you hedging your bets is is kind of sensible because if you pin yourself too heavily to individual targets and they don't happen, then you find yourself nowhere. And it's yeah, it 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 just makes me wonder the fact that they haven't gone back in for Kemp when they could probably have have got that done and when the the initial noises seemed to be that he might be keen and and that there would you know there's been a lot of chatter up north as well about a release clause which if it is there in his contract would would kind of leave. Rangers helpless to do anything if, if someone was to meet it. So an interesting one this and on top of that I get the sense that if they have a striker in yeah, and it looks like Rodrigo um, and if they um, if they get a centre back done which which looks like Koch at the moment then I think Bielsa would be quite happy with where he's at I, I don't mean that he wouldn't want anything else but I think when it comes to getting into the games and into the fixture list I think he'd be okay with that. You know, I think he would feel like two of the major bases had been covered and they would need more to come. And I think they might well hold back alone until later in the window, just in case, because there aren't, don't seem to be many loan options at the moment, but that might change in, in a month's time when the deadline draws close and, and players are looking for clubs to go to. They might hold that back and, and you know, they, I don't expect them to stop at, at two deals, but I really don't see, think we'll see a huge amount more than that. And the other incoming that we do know about is Sam Greenwood from Arsenal, young lad who's 18, comes with a big reputation and a lot of suitors. Yeah, he does. Um, this rolls on the academy recruitment that's been pretty concerted right the way through the summer. You know, that's the that's the level where Leeds have made really quick progress in, in the market. So they've done Cody Dramay, obviously, from Fulham, and they've done Joe Geldhart from Wigan and Charlie Allen from Linfield and, and others. But you know, Greenwood is seen as a, a very good prospect at Arsenal. 18-year-old striker down there who was at Sunderland before going down to, to London. That, I think, is, as we speak, I think the medical's been going on today and that seems to be in place. Leeds will pay, they initially were looking to pay about £900,000 for him, but I think it'll end up being closer to £1.5 million, um, which, again, is a substantial payment for a, an academy player and, and someone who, who hasn't been, you know, hasn't shown kind of first-team credentials yet. They're obviously very serious about bumping up the strength of the 23s and they're obviously very serious about the longer term plan of having players who've been signed for six figure sums or very low seven figure sums who turn out to be worth vastly more than that when they, they start to hit their peak. And with Gilhard in particular, I'm hearing very, very good things about him. It sounds like he's settled in very, very quickly and the, the feeling already is that he, he's going to be a bit of a steal at the price they've paid. How are you coming to terms with it, Phil, from your time covering Leeds when you know a million pounds was a... An absolutely enormous signing for the first team to now when a million pounds is someone who we're almost certainly not even going to get to see this season. It is strange. I, I always remember doing an interview with Sean Harvey and, and him saying people would be happy to see us buy a, a, a sack of spuds as long as we spent a million pounds on it. And I kind of understood where he was coming from because it can get a bit like that in the transfer market. But on the flip side, I, I'd always think to myself, well, you never spend a million pounds on anyone. So, you know, that, that argument is moot. And I, I accept that in the EFL, it's more difficult to deal. And I think there are clubs in the EFL who, who've gone way over the top when it comes to signing players. You've seen at Middlesbrough as a, a good example that the outlay they had um, under Gary Monk you know, huge fees for people like Sombolonga and so on have caught up on them and, and have caused a problem and, and you need to get the balance right. And I think that's almost one of the things that's been most impressive about the last two years at Leeds. They, they got it right with Bielsa and it was a fantastic appointment. But equally, they managed to hit the sweet spot when it came to the money to spend on players, the money to spend on, on wages and, and the losses that they were going to tolerate and that Radrizani was going to pick up. But yeah, this feels like a completely different era already and and 
it, but it, it's funny how natural a thirty million pound striker and a thirty million pound signing feels as soon as you get into the Premier League. There must be something about crossing the Rubicon, really, because it's um, it's not feeling as odd as it should. Uh, it feels pretty odd to me, I have to say. My first reaction with Rodrigo was, "That's amazing. We're signing a you know Spain international who's been playing at the top Spanish club for several years, doing really well, linked with Barcelona." And then the second thought was, "Well, we've we've not got thirty million pounds. This is a ridiculous thing to do." The economy is getting back underway and with it, the world of sports. With Bloomberg and The Athletic, you can stay ahead of the curve thanks to two world-class news desks covering developments across finance, economics, technology and sport. Subscribe to Bloomberg.com and if you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, for a limited time, you can receive a complimentary athletic subscription. Go to Bloomberg.com forward slash subscribe to sign up today. Let's get through the other stuff now then. Calvin Phillips, we have to talk about him and the England call-up that he's got. He's been called up for England's Nations League games, which take place away at Iceland on Saturday, the 5th of September, and Denmark away on Tuesday, the 8th of September. And here's what Gareth Southgate had to say about the call-up. To be able to call a player this morning and uh, let him know that his first England call-up uh, was going to happen today was a lovely moment and a reminder of how much it means to players and their families to be involved with England and selected by England. So, yeah, Calvin is a player who um, we've been very impressed in this particular role he plays at Leeds. He's obviously extremely well coached. They're an impressive team to watch. It's a step up for him because he's got to adjust to life in the Premier League. But it's a position we need some competition for places in. And, um you know, we're, we're interested to look at him at this early stage of the season. He cites the excellent coaching there. Goes to show how much Bielsa has done for him and Leeds, doesn't it? Absolutely. This has felt like an inevitable occurrence um, as the last two years have gone on. It was it was looking likely that Phillips might get a, uh, might get the nod um, when the friendlies were due to come round in, in March at the point where COVID shut everything down. Um, but there had been discussions between Southgate and Phillips Camp and, and Leeds as well prior to the announcement of the squad earlier this week. And you did feel it was coming for, for a number of reasons. Firstly, his improvement and the fact that he, he, you know, even in the Championship and outside the Premier League, and I know Southgate has spoken before about the need to play in the Premier League before you can be seriously considered, but even at that level, he was looking like as good a defensive midfielder as, as there was for England to, to call upon. And, and Southgate's right, you know, they, they, they do need alternatives there. They do need a bit more competition. And I think the the argument that inevitably brewed about um, Jack Grealish not being in and, and Phillips um, making the cut, given what Southgate has said in the past, I think it was a red herring on the basis that where Grealish has been playing, uh, mostly out wide for Villa, he was never going to get picked there for England. There are better players and, and there, there are better options. But I just think with Phillips, having improved so much under Bielsa, and I think more to the point, having been a bit of a personal project for Bielsa and you know thrived in the, the, the exceptional way that he has... He's absolutely worth the go, and I was, you know, I, I really chuffed to bits to see him. And I've, I've been watching Phillips for a long time now, right back to to when he he made his debut way back under Neil Redfern, and it's been it's been up and down for him. He's had periods where he he struggled to get a game. He's had periods where he's been in the team, but it hasn't gone particularly well. There've been long periods where I think he was just waiting to find his calling. Really, he's waiting to find what it was that that he he was particularly good at. And when I went to interview him after the end of the season, we sat and we analysed some of his performances, and he was saying that he, he kind of always thought of himself as box to box. You know, he always thought of himself as being that box to box midfielder who would look for goals, who would 
who could be attacking when he needed to, but could track back as well. And and I think he's as surprised as anybody at the way in which Bales has moulded him into this outstanding defensive mid. And and I cannot wait to see how he copes with England because it is a, a jump up and it is another level. But he's so relaxed and laid back that I can see him coping with it quite easily. But you say you've been watching him for a long time. Go back as recently as like the end of the 2017-18 season. At that point, if someone had asked you where you thought Phillips would be at the start of the 2020 season, where would you have honestly said? I don't know. I, I could have seen him at Leeds quite easily. He, he always looked comfortable without ever looking absolutely outstanding. And and I think in that summer when they sold Vieira, most people would probably have, have felt that the likelihood was that if a big bid was coming in, it was more likely to come um, for Vieira than it was for Phillips. I'm sure I remember in that summer Derby being linked with him and, and being quite keen, but talking about a fee that was considerably below the £7 million that Sampdoria paid for, for Vieira to take him over to Italy. But it's interesting, I, I know, I mean, Paul Heckingbottom had a, had a nightmare at Leeds and, and, you know, will not be particularly well thought of, but I always remember him saying to us, we were chatting about the two of them and so talking about who had, you know, the, the greater strengths, who had the potential to, to be better. And Heckingbottom always said, look, Vieira is, is a really talented kid and, and he's strong and he's physically way beyond his years. But he said in terms of the actual technical side and technical ability, Phillips definitely scores higher. And, and he was very, very clear on that. And I think the fact that Bielsa has, has got into him in the way that he has and has clearly taken such a, a major shine to him tells you that technically that is that is where it's at with Phillips you know that is where his strength is and, and that is why Bielsa thought he could do great things with him but where he'd have been at this point I've no idea I think if I go back to the summer of 2018 before it became clear that Bielsa was coming in I don't think any of us even really knew where the club were going and I think there was probably that that, that sort of permanent suspicion that in two years' time we'd be having the same conversations that we seem to have um, every summer. And I'm still, when I look back, pretty amazed at the, the total transformation that's taken place since then. On to the kits. Um, we have seen finally the launch of the white one, which killed the club shop website. And now we've seen the accidentally leaked pictures of the away one, which confirms what we all knew. It's that very dark blue and we've got some green stripes in there. Echoes of Yeboah. Yes, um, not surprised this. This was leaked long before the home kit came out. A long time ago, there were kind of mock-up picks or, or picks that seemed to have been taken in, in a factory somewhere that weren't a million miles away from from what we're seeing now. I mean, it's it, it, again the, the reception to it seems to have been very good, and you know the home kit is is flying as it was bound to do. And everyone will have seen the, the queues around the block when the when it went on sale at the club shop uh, on Monday. And like you say, the, the website, despite having multiple servers set up for it, was, was struggling last Thursday because of the sheer volume of people who, who were trying to get on board and, and get it bought. So without a doubt, as I always say, you know, it's the, the commercial side of this is, is what interests me, really, the, the difference it's going to make. And we've, we've got Sleeve Sponsor announced as well, which is JD Sports. Um, and I think I've said previously that they're all in its looking like the, the kit sponsorship agreements will be worth about £10 million a year, which is a hugely significant amount of money. It buys you one-third of, of Rodrigo. So, yeah, I mean, all, all looking good on that front. The fear, I guess, always was it was going to be something like Visit Myanmar, wasn't it? But at least it's a brand that we've heard of from the British high street. It is, and, and there'll be some people who don't like the fact um, that it's a betting sponsor on the front of the kit, and that is an argument that I think is kind of here to stay and, and is, is going to keep going back and forward um, indefinitely. But no, you're right. I mean, it's it, it's a leisure brand. It's something people people know. It it isn't visit Myanmar. It isn't anything particularly controversial. And I, I think the point is that 
beyond any of that from a financial perspective. Leeds will be doing very, very well out of these. And that, that again, was why they took their time with them. They just wanted to make sure that they, they maximised the potential for the first season back. And we've got new analytics people on board this year, Phil, which, which plays a huge part in the way that Leeds United operates and football operates in general. And we know, don't we, that Bielsa plays so much stock in people's running stats and performance output. Yeah, for the, the past um, few years, uh, Leeds have been looked after by um, Catapult, who are one of the, the biggest um, providers of performance analyst data. And people have seen the GPS vests that the players wear to, to track their running and the distance they do and, and also the intensity of their running so it can, it can pick out the sprints they, that they complete as opposed to the, the points where they're running at a lower intensity. And for this season coming up, they've moved to Stat Sports, who are an, an Irish firm who've been operating for about 10 years. Um, and essentially the, the same idea, they're, they're a provider of analysis and, and data um, which help clubs um, like Leeds to monitor the fitness of the players to kind of guard against injury, prevent injuries, um, and also to, to raise... The general fitness and I had the chance earlier this week to speak to Sean O'Connor who's one of the founders of, of Stat Sports but but also interestingly Tom Robinson who's a sports scientist at Leeds he's their first team sports scientist and has been on the, the staff there for about 10 years he, he first came in as an intern when he was studying at, at Leeds Beckett University the thing that made me laugh to begin with was we, we went back to talking about what it was like when he first came in the door at Leeds you know what what was the the deal with sports science what was the deal with analysis and, and he was saying that you know, in, in those days, they used to loan a few vests, not enough for everybody, and they would share them around the squad. You know, players would wear them from time to time and then pass them on to somebody else, and they would get these kind of reams of data which didn't have much context around them, which wasn't particularly easy to, to decode, and ultimately wasn't particularly scientific. And, and it is quite amusing to look back at that now because the game's moved to a point now where, as you know, Tom was saying, you just could not be without it. At this level of football, you just couldn't take the chance of leaving things to guesswork or of not monitoring players to the, the point that, that you need to. Um, and the data gets more advanced and, and the data has got more advanced at, at Leeds this summer. And it's it's just another step forward to, towards a different level of professionalism. How does this actually look then to Bielsa and the coaching staff? Like how does the how's the data presented to them? The big difference um, this summer is, um, and, and with the move to stat sports, is that they're being provided with live data, which means that the performance stats of the players as uh, they're in the middle of a training session or as they're playing a game are available in, in real time. So your analysts and coaches can stand pitch side with tablets and they also get smartwatches as well which allow them to flick through the data as it comes to them. So it makes a difference because it you can monitor more closely the, a player's training load and, and you can monitor more closely the risk of any injury or, or anything else like that. And it just helps for quicker analysis and it helps for, for more detailed analysis. And what what I think was most interesting with Tom when I was chatting to him was, was him talking about the fact that the data has probably been analysed best at Leeds since Bielsa came in, but also it's been it's able to be analysed best because for the first time in a long time, Leeds have actually had a bit of continuity with a head coach. So they've had a manager who's been very consistent in his methods and with his training for two years. And because of that, they've got a lot of data um, to compare new results to. You know, he said if if you chop and change and if you don't have that consistency, you get all the numbers, but it can be difficult to work out what they mean or, or to, to have any precise context around them because you don't have enough old data to, to set them against. Um, we we're talking about Motherball, for example, and he said, you know, the, the stats are completely off the scale in that because unlike a 
a normal game, you have no stoppages, there are no injuries, there are no refereeing decisions, there's nothing. So you run more than you would do. But because that's been happening for two years and because that is a regular session and because that's what they do, your body starts to adapt to it and your body starts to, to get used to it and naturally you get fitter and your, your conditioning improves. And he seemed to be in absolutely no doubt that the players are in as the best condition they could possibly be in. And I don't think it's a coincidence either that the, the injuries in the second season under Bielsa were fewer than they were in the first. I, I think the ability of everybody to get used to his methods and to get used to the demands on them has developed little by little. And I think, you know, I, I remember speaking to Liam Cooper at the start of season two and him saying that the difference this time around is that we're going back to training knowing what to expect. We know what it'll be like. Bodies are used to it. Bodies have been through this before. So it doesn't make it easy. But it, it's not a total shock to the system either. Um, and Tom said to me when I spoke to him this week, said, you're going into season three with Bielsa. Again, it's just that extra bit of continuity beyond these two years. And, and from his point of view as a sports scientist, I think it makes his job a lot easier. Can I ask a very Yorkshire question on this? How much does it cost? Now, this is a good question because it's not a question that your, your suppliers would answer because a, a lot of confidential information behind it and there's obviously a lot of um, competition out in the market as well. Um, I have been told before with Statsports that, that they have in the past given year one free to clubs. Now, I, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's accurate, but the people who told me that, I, I suspect, would know. So the honest answer is I don't know. I don't know how much this involves, but clearly Leeds think that there's an advantage of switching from catapult to, to these suppliers. And I think... I think looking at the, the kind of live aspect of it and the difference that makes, you can see why it's, it's been appealing to them. Well, this is going to be like the difficult second album after last week's startling revelations. The Phil Hayes Show is brought to you by Manscaped, the experts in men's below-the-belt grooming. And I don't know about you, but after last week, I spent a disproportionate amount of time gazing at the boys down below after that hot chat a week ago. Dreaming of ball, Toner. Any, uh, any news of an, in- uh, an incoming Brazilian, Phil? No, no, not yet. No, rumours of Arthur um, Cabral have been grossly exaggerated, I'm afraid. So if you did miss the details last week, here they are. Manscaped are offering precision engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped has just launched in the UK and because we've gone years without using the right tools for the job, you can be one of the first blokes in the country to experience Manscaped's life-changing products. Their third generation trimmer has got a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce manscaping accidents. And the water-resistant technology also allows you to groom whilst in the shower. And we've got a special offer right now for you for listening to this show. 20% off and free shipping if you use the code EPL20 at manscaped.com. See, that's how it happens now. We're rolling with the big boys now. We're in the top flight. 20% off with free shipping, manscaped.com, if you use the code EPL20. Happy and safe shaving. The part three poll now where you get to decide the contents of the end section of the show. You can find the poll every week on Phil's Twitter feed in the first half of the week. Three choices. Pick your favourite. This week's results with nearly 10,000 people voting. Thank you if you took part. And it's another close one. In third place, Jimmy Hasselbank's exit at 25% of the vote. Viduka's goals, 36.4%. But winning by a nose, appointing Terry Venables with 38.6% of the vote. I like to think I interfered with the democracy on this one because I did retweet saying um, vote Venables because I, I feel like we've talked about Viduka a lot already in the past. Let's, let's hear about something new. You went full Russian agent, did you? Nice work. It's dead easy then. You just ask people to do it. There will be people who will remember the Venables era who will be listening to this and those who just categorise it as a bad experience as the, the Leeds Ridsdale madness all sort of came to a head. So why Terry Venables? 
at that point? I still think that's a very good question. Ridsdale had got himself into a bit of a hole in that his relationship with Aleri had, had gone the way of all things. And at the time, there were comments from Ridsdale and have been comments since about Aleri losing the dressing room. And I don't think anyone can question that that, ha- that happened to a degree. But I think more than anything, Ridsdale and, and O'Leary lost each other and, and certainly Ridsdale lost faith in, in what he was doing. If you think back to that summer, it would be very difficult for anyone to pretend that Terry Venables was first choice in the way that when England tried to pretend that Steve McLaren had been first choice after they spent time in Brazil chasing around after Felipe Scolari kind of struggled to struggle to fool anybody with that one. Um, Leeds had, had, had a very good look at Martin O'Neill who was fairly hot property at that point, was sought after and, and doing good things at, at Leicester. But it also taken a lot of thought and time to, to consider Steve McLaren who was up at Middlesbrough and from reading back through various reports it seems apparent that McLaren thought the job was going to be his and you know one, there's a very good piece in The Guardian which seemed to suggest that Leeds got rather cold feet about McLaren over the fact that he'd been at Manchester United with Ferguson, he'd been part of that treble winning programme in, in 1999 and it was also clear that, that McLaren had been sounding out Ferguson about the Leeds job to get his view on, on whether it, it should be done. The next step was Venables, who had, was coming into the job with, with a very sort of patchy track record. He'd, he'd obviously won the title at Barcelona. He'd won the FA Cup at Spurs. He'd had a very good run with England in, in Euro 96. But once you got beyond that, there wasn't an awful lot to his resume. He'd, he'd had a bit of time in charge of Australia. He'd had six months at Crystal Palace. He'd had six months or so at Middlesbrough, a job where he'd almost usurped Brian Robson and had almost been there to, to kind of hold Robson's hand at a point where Robson seemed to be really struggling and, and Borough were in trouble. But even looking back at that move and, and that appointment, it was kind of taken with reluctance by Venables. He, he did go in as, as assistant, although it felt more like he was going in as de facto manager. But it had almost fallen through originally because... Venables had media commitments that he he wanted to try and tie him with a job or that he needed to needed to remain committed to. And it didn't give the impression of somebody who was 100% devoted to the idea of getting back into management. And, and when I look back, the thing that really struck me was on the day that Leeds appointed him, gave him a two-year deal. And, and that basically came about after a, a quick conversation between Ridsdale and Venables at his villa um, in Spain. He said... I honestly felt I'd had enough of management after Middlesbrough. What surprised me most is how good I feel about taking this job. You know, I'm genuinely excited by the thought of it and the whole business has been conducted like a whirlwind. And then he said at the end, if people are surprised about this, then they're no more surprised than me. I simply didn't anticipate this outcome. And, you know, with hindsight, which is always helpful, um, you look back and you think they they essentially appointed somebody who, to all intents and purposes, had had given up on his career. You know, had had just about had enough and, and... didn't really have much inclination to carry on. And and it makes it very hard to understand why it was that in such a critical summer and at a point where somebody, you know, somebody with a a lot of strong credentials was needed to replace O'Leary, they went for Venables. I'm surprised that you talk about Steve McLaren there because that's not a name I actually recall hearing at the time. I remember there was a lot of talk of Martin O'Neill who we, we failed to get for a second time. And Gus Hiddink was the other name that I seem to remember being in the picture. Again, I'm going by this piece in the in the Guardian, but McLaren actually released a statement the night before Venables was appointed saying, I've no intention of walking away from what everyone at Middlesbrough has been working hard to achieve over the past 12 months. But the Guardian does add that sources close to him revealed he was humiliated and angry at the, the sudden change of events. I think he thought that he was going to be in the door at Leeds and I think he'd approached it in a way 
that meant that, that he was serious about taking it. But Martin O'Neill was the one. And I mean, if you look back at some of the coverage in the Yorkshire Evening Post, that was the name that dominated the back page for so long. The fact that it looked like it was going to be him. He was the person um, Ridsdale wanted. But, you know, only O'Neill could, could explain why he didn't go for it at the time. But you have to say that it was a common sense decision, What given what, what happened at Leeds after O'Leary went. I think with O'Neill as well, it's, it's worth remembering for anyone who is too young to remember this, that at the time... He did have an incredible reputation, did O'Neill. We tried to get him prior to O'Leary when George Graham had left. And at this point, he was at Celtic, wasn't he? And he was doing doing a good job up there. I know in the late years when he left Villa to an extent, and certainly by the time he left Sunderland, he was regarded as a little bit of a dinosaur. But at the time, he was one of the, the hottest managers around. No, absolutely he was. Yeah, no, that had been the case at, at Leicester. Um, it, it was the case when he went up to Celtic as well. He was... He was very, very successful and, and very well thought of. And I don't think you should confuse the, the 2020 Martin O'Neill with the, the Martin O'Neill that was, was there in, in 2002. He, he was a, an easy manager to cover and, and someone who a lot of clubs would have would have wanted to appoint. McLaren was a bit further back in, in as much as he'd gone to Middlesbrough and done pretty well up there. It, it, it had gone well for him, but he was still coming off the back of a fairly long stretch or a, a successful stretch anyway as, as Ferguson's assistant over at, at Manchester United and I go back to what I was saying about Venables at the start it seemed as if his career was petering out it really did it had been really short spells um, at a couple of clubs and and even that you know two very short spells after leaving England um, in 1996 and it, there just didn't seem to be any logic behind the decision there didn't seem to be any, any sense or, or any proper rationale for going for him, if you were actually looking to to create some sort of legacy, um, and what I always find quite fascinating about Venables is that it is almost impossible to find anyone in Leeds who thinks he did anything resembling a good job, and also impossible to find anybody who doesn't think that for what happened that season he should should carry the can fairly heavily. He was presenting a TV program like Wish You Were Here. He was on or something crazy, wasn't he? And he had to finish his filming commitments with that before he could take the Leeds job, which is insane in itself. But when you look back on that era, it was a, an era of insanity. I would say it fell apart on three key points, really. There was the recruitment in and out. Obviously, that squad players were sold to try and pay the bills. The players in weren't great. So that's one thing. The style of football wasn't great, a third of which was falling out with, with key players. So let's have a quick uh, rifle through those. And the first one, the transfers, obviously Rio Ferdinand was sold and the players who came in to replace just were not up to that same standard because, well, we were skint. Yeah, I think the three points you listed there are, are exactly right. That was where it, it all went wrong. If Ferdinand went within two weeks of uh, Leeds agreeing to appoint Venables, it, it was always on the cards. It had been at the card on the cards right the way through the 2002 World Cup. I think all the English media who were out there were well aware that when Ferdinand came back to England after that, he was going to push for the move to Man United and Man United were going to pay enough money to make it happen. So so he was gone, although it surprised me to find that actually when the frustration from Venables was with Manchester United rather than Leeds for, for selling Ferdinand. He said, you know, they, they seem to think they're entitled to everything. If they do end up getting Rio, it may be more determined than anything to stop them lifting the title. You know, I, I really thought I'd be able to, to make him stay. Um, I understand the lure and appeal of Manchester United, but I still thought Rio would understand. So that was that was very much out of his hands. But what wasn't out of his hands was the, the various fallouts he had. And I think... He lost key players that he couldn't afford to lose given what was coming in to the club and, and what was going out. I mean, he signed Nick Barmby, he signed Paul Oaken, uh, who was in nobody's eyes really up to 
anything like the standard of, of a Champions League team. They got Raul Bravo on loan, they got Terry Lucic on, on loan as well, and, and that was essentially it. And, and given that in the, the January window, the, the window that followed and the window just before Venables was sacked, they sold Jonathan Woodgate to to Newcastle for about eight, nine million pounds. And and considering as well that he fell out badly with Olivier Decor to the point where Decor left and and you know that relationship was was kind of smashed forever. It suddenly went from this swashbuckling Champions League team that was young and was fresh and seemed to have no sense of fear about it at all to a side that was laboured, to a side that looked like it was on the way down and, and like it had kind of started to rust. You know, it had gone from the sparkling new project to something that looked in, in need of a, a proper overhaul and, and in need of some proper money, which at that point Leeds just did not have, regardless of the sale of Ferdinand and, and the sale of Woodgate. That was, you know, those were starting to, to cover debts. And I think the thing that tells you how much trouble Leeds were in is when Ridsdale spoke to Freddie Shepherd to say he was going to do the deal for Woodgate, he said to Shepherd, you know, this will cost me my job here. Like, this will cost me the job as chairman here because people are just not going to accept this and I won't be able to explain it in a way that, that will be acceptable. And the only reason for him going was the fact that Leeds desperately needed the cash. Going back to the style of football in that era, there was a narrative at the time, and I don't know if it was just, you know, terrace chat at Ellen Road or whether there was truth in this, that the players were not, attuned to what Venables wanted to do. His coaching was a lot more kind of technical and the style of football he wanted to do was a lot more considered, which kind of ran counter to the all-energy style of O'Leary's side. Well, here's where it gets quite interesting because he fell out with two two notable players, Venables, Decor, obviously, but also Nigel Martin, who came back from the World Cup like Ferdinand and asked if he could miss a tour to the Far East in Australia because essentially he wanted a break. You know, he'd been out there for a long time. Um, England had made it to the quarterfinals. There hadn't been much of an opportunity for a breather. And the plan was to fly abroad again and to spend, you know, a fair amount of time um, over on, on the other side of the world. And Venables wasn't happy about that. And, and rather than trying to mediate or to be diplomatic about it, he essentially bombed Martin out there and then and, and brought Paul Robinson into the team. He was a very good goalkeeper in his own right. But what was even more peculiar about it was that it wasn't as if he moved Martin on, you know, quickly. Martin was there all season, but but never played again before he, he went to, to Everton. So, you know, in, in the background, you had people who were growing fairly unhappy. I mean, I went to interview Decor back in October. I went to Paris to see him. And I mean, he couldn't he couldn't be more scathing about Venables. The core started to get left out of the team. Venables kind of painted the picture of somebody who's been disruptive and difficult. But the bottom line was that Decor was outstanding midfielder who and the sort of player that, that Leeds really needed and, and couldn't afford to lose. But he you know, I, when I spoke to Decor, he was saying that he had a similar issue with um Jose Mourinho at Inter Milan. Um, Mourinho didn't really rate him, didn't really see him as being in the picture. But the difference was that Decor felt that he was learning from Mourinho. He felt like even at his age and he was starting to get to the tail end of his career, it, it was beneficial for him. And, and he said to me, you know, with Mourinho, maybe I didn't like the man, but I like the manager. You know, I respect the manager because the manager is great and I can't ignore that. With Terry Venables, I don't like the man and I don't like the, the manager. Terry Venables, I don't like. But in contrast to that, I recently did a piece with Stephen McPhail who himself is a very classy midfielder, different midfielder to Decor, but but actually the player who Decor says always impressed him most in training, you know, the player who really stood out with his left foot. And McPhail said, Venable's way was different to anything I'd experienced. He was very tactical and he showed me a lot of things I've never thought about before. Um, I learned a hell of a lot from him and I genuinely think Terry would have been great for the club if he'd been there at a different time. In all seriousness, it was a bit of Pep Guardiola 
in the way that he thought. You know, his thinking was pretty advanced. I just don't think there was any chance of him putting his stamp on the team and people in Leeds never really got to see what I was seeing. And there's such a massive contrast there that it, it leaves you quite confused about what was going on. The only thing I would say is that McPhail is genuinely the first person I've spoke to who really, really found himself speaking in, in about Venables in those terms. Most people seem to feel that it was a, an all-round disaster. It just never made sense to me, the whole thing. What about you, Michael? I seem to remember at the time there was a a vague optimism around it. I mean, he took over a team that had done well, done exceptionally well for a few years. I think we finished fifth, and with the the summer that O'Leary was eventually disposed of. But it's one of those things that I wonder if, with Euro '96 still in fairly recent memory, and the fact that he he was a pundit, so we'd heard him talk a good game. We almost overlooked the fact that he'd more or less retired and was and was not actually necessarily up for the the day to day management of a big club anymore. Like Phil said, the stuff he did at Middlesbrough was it almost felt a bit like supply teacher stuff and it'd been brought in to hold someone's hand because they weren't really up to it. And it was like, well, that's a very different job to actually trying to take a team forward and and be, I guess, the Bielsa character who can look two or three years ahead and start trying to make proper plans. It felt panicked. It felt, it in a weird way, it reminded me of the Warnock era in that it was a case of he tried to bring in a couple of his own men to begin with. He didn't necessarily feel like he was fully committed to it. And when it, and the longer it went on, it was just clear it wasn't working. But he was then essentially, I think, in a point of probably wanting to just quit and walk out of there, but also hanging in there for a payment. There was a sense of a, a manager in a job that he wasn't sure if he really wanted. And I think when you, you piece together what was going on before him coming to Leeds and, and what had happened in his career, that's probably not an, an unfair observation. I mean, they beat Manchester City on the first day of the season. They won 3-0, a bit of a canter at Ellen Road. And I always remember him being asked after that game, do you actually think that you could mount a bit of a challenge for the, the title? Um, and he sort of laughed in the way that Venables does and kind of played it all down and, and everything else. But you could tell that on that day, there was quite a quiet sense of satisfaction about how they'd started and, and the fact that it, it had gone so easily against City. But once Leeds started to stray into September, October, right up towards Christmas, the poor results kept following the following poor results. They were obviously knocked out of the eighth cut by Malaga and there were incidents in that game, a stamp from Boyer, there was a bit of a square up between Wilcox and, and Gary Kelly. It just felt like a very unhappy camp and I was looking back at some of um, Venable's quotes at the time and speaking very openly about the pressure the players were under, about the fact that they'd been under pressure for a long time, they weren't coping with it too well, they needed to learn to to cope with it better. And I think that there is a lot in the, the Venable story that points to poor man management, which isn't to say that he was a poor man manager full stop. You know, I don't think I don't think that would be fair for me to say. But to look at Nigel Martin, who people would consider to be a very, very mild mannered guy, not to mention an outstanding keeper, albeit, you know, an outstanding keeper who was starting to get towards the, the end of his career. And um, but also decor, somebody who could have been a big player for Venables to kind of lose the people that he did and and to kind of lose the plot in the way that he did didn't say a lot for him and I, I, it didn't surprise me to remember that he hasn't managed since um, he went from, from Leeds he had that little spell with uh, McLaren at England which was equally you know a, a bit of a shambles and, and didn't work out but in terms of club management you know that was the, the end of the line for him and, and I'm not at all shocked by that Well let's finish on a positive note and say we're on to happier times these days and we're just you know breaking the bank for our record signing so catch up on Phil's bit on Rodrigo on The Athletic and try it out for free at the minute 30 day free trial theathletic.com forward slash leads pod we'll speak to you next time ta The Phil Hay Show